Please take your Bible and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30, which is on page 161 in your pew Bible, 161. If you don't have a Bible, that Bible that's near you, under uh, the seat perhaps underneath you or uh, the seat in front of you, that is yours to keep. You can take that home with you. We will not call you a thief if you take that Bible. We will encourage you to take it and hope you'll uh, spend lots of time in the Word of God. This is on page 161 in that pew Bible, Deuteronomy 30. If someone said that the job of a pastor is to help people walk with God in love for Him, I think that would be a relatively accurate statement. And one of the ways I seek to do that as the primary preaching pastor here is to show you that every book of the Bible is not only true, but is relevant to the way that we live the Christian life. And my guess is that the book of Deuteronomy would fall on a perhaps short or perhaps long list of books that you would consider not very relevant. And one of my goals in this series is to help disprove that myth. Uh, I hope this brief series has done something to chip away at that idea, at that sense that Deuteronomy is difficult and um, irrelevant. And also hope it's given you an earnest desire to love God with all of your heart, as the repeated cry throughout this book has been. Deuteronomy is essentially a collection of sermons that Moses preached to the people of God just before they crossed over into the promised land. So if you know the story of the Bible at all, and if you don't, it's fine. We'll kind of walk through it at different points today. But the story of the Bible is basically God called people and told them to go, and he will give them land. And now Moses is on the verge of taking the people into that land or sending them into that land to claim the land that God has given them as a means of blessing uh, all the people of the world. And so this is a collection of sermons, and uh, this is the land that God has promised to them that they're about to go claim. What do they need to know? What do they need to believe in order to successfully walk as God's people in that land? That's what the book of Deuteronomy is all about. We've been preaching this book since uh, about late April, wrapping it up next week. Uh, But for now, I'll read Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 20. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 20. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice and holding fast to Him. For He is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. 
On this weekend, nearly 250 years ago, a group of men known as the Continental Congress gathered in Philadelphia to work through the language of a document drafted by Thomas Jefferson, a document we know today as the Declaration of Independence. They'd actually been working on the language of that document for several weeks. They had been deciding together, debating the decision together for several months of whether to declare independence. That had been a long process of whether they should do that, whether it was going to end well if they did that. What they had before them at that point was a decision to make. Which way to go? They had two ways they could go. They could go ahead and agree to that document, the language that Thomas Jefferson drafted, and they had refined together. They could send it on their way over the Atlantic Ocean, or they could continue as subjects of King George III. And even though they knew what the options were, they did not have a guarantee of how things were going to turn out if they went ahead and signed that document and sent it on its way. Maybe they don't declare independence and the situation improves. Maybe they do declare independence and the situation gets way worse. It would take some time, in fact several years, before they knew the ultimate outcome of that decision. A little closer to home for those uh, sports enthusiasts among us, this past Wednesday the Chicago Blackhawks hockey team drafted a 17-year-old Canadian hockey player who has been talked about since he was about 10 years old as the next great hockey player. And they did not have to draft him. They obviously had hundreds of choices, ultimately probably about two. Uh, But uh, now they're going to live with the consequences of whether Connor Bedard is the next great one or is not. And if he is, that is awesome. But the only way to tell is by waiting and finding out. There's no guarantee, but time will tell. In our passage today, the people of God had a choice to make as well. But they did know what the outcome of that decision was going to be. At least they knew what God said the outcome would be. The question then was whether they were going to believe him or not. And as hard as it is to believe, their decision was way more important than whether to choose Connor Bedard or whether to send a document over the Atlantic Ocean either. Their decision, as we heard in the passage I just read aloud, was whether they were going to choose life or they were going to choose death. It was that cut and dry. If they chose to walk in God's ways, they would enjoy life as it was meant to be. It was as if they would live in the Garden of Eden again. That's what they were choosing between. Whether to live life as it was meant to be in the Garden of Eden, or whether they would walk in their own ways and as a result reap the consequences of rebellion against God. And for all of us here today, I want to tell you that you have a decision to make as well. And it's a big one. Will you choose life? Or will you suffer death? That's what lies in front of us when we read this passage. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you what it would mean to choose life. It's not exactly an A-to-A comparison from this passage to our lives today, as those of us living on this side of the cross. If you're going to choose life, it's going to mean to choose Christ. That's what it means. Choose to follow Christ. Because what this passage is going to do is lay out The blessings of following God, well, those are blessings that Christ has claimed for us. Or the curse of rebelling against God, that's the curse that Christ bore on the cross on behalf of us as his people. And so what lies before us is, are you going to choose life by choosing to follow Christ, or are you going to choose death by rebelling against him with your life? 
Now, if you have not been here for the other sermons in this series, let me give you a very brief recap. And even if you have been here for the other sermons, it's been several weeks since we preached through a portion of Deuteronomy. So uh, what happened in the early chapters of the book is Moses is recounting what happened in the first four books of the Bible. So if you're familiar with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, Moses kind of summarizes that in a couple of chapters, all that's come before the people of Israel in this book. And he told them that God made his chosen people, made Israel his chosen people, not because of how amazing they were, even if they thought they were amazing. They were not. And it wasn't because of how powerful they were, because they were not. He told them that he chose them to be his special people because of how gracious he is. And he told them then to walk in his ways, to live in holiness, in other words. And then he spelled out exactly what that would look like. That was especially chapters 12 through 26. And the simplest way to summarize what comes in Deuteronomy 12 through 26 is love God with everything in you and love your neighbor as yourself. That's Deuteronomy 12 through 26, really spelled out and given specificity in those several chapters there in the middle of the book. And so that's Deuteronomy 1 through 26 in a nutshell. Today's passage tells us, excuse me, tells us and tells Israel what would happen if they choose to obey this covenant that they are in with God, that they've agreed to. And the message of this passage was clear to the original audience. Uh, If you obey God, you will be blessed. That was the message of this passage. And maybe you picked up on that even from the the brief section I read in chapter 30 there. But we need to realize it is a different message for us living on this side of the cross. It's very important for us to grasp that. The way we read a passage like this is different because we live in a different era of what we could call salvation history. We are not apples to apples, the same as the nation of Israel, living in the land uh, called uh, the promised land, um, Canaan. And so once Jesus came, once he became a man and lived the perfect life and died on our behalf and rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, everything changed. And so uh, the rest of the Old Testament tells us how Israel did at following this passage, whether they chose life or whether they chose death. The rest of the Old Testament tells that story. Did they choose life? Did they choose death? And I'll go ahead and give you the spoiler alert. They chose death. And I think you probably know that. Uh, If you know anything about the Old Testament at all, if you don't, that's totally fine. And I'm happy to expose you to some of the ways that the Old Testament teases this out as we go along here. Instead of loving loyalty to God, God's people worshipped other gods. They committed spiritual adultery, is what the Old Testament calls it. They walked in foolishness rather than wisdom. And that is the story of the Old Testament from at least one angle. Now this section that we're looking at today, 27 through 30, boils down to basically two sections. A description of what will happen based on whether God's people choose to obey or choose to disobey. And a call for Israel to make the right choice. So that's oversimplifying it a bit. We are covering four chapters, so if you want to corner me about a particular passage or section of this uh, unit afterwards, that's totally fine. I'm not going to be able to dot every I in a passage this long, but the gist of this passage is there's a description of how to follow God, what the results will be if you follow God, I should say, and a call to actually follow God then. And so Moses is telling Israel that if you obey God's law, He will bless you. Life will be really good. It'll be like you're living in Eden again. 
And the rest of the Old Testament then has to be interpreted through the lens of this passage. And I'll show you some ways that we should do that later on. So when you read about things going well for Israel later on in the Old Testament, you should say, oh, that's because they're doing what God said they should do. And when you read something in the Old Testament, like going into exile, for instance, you should read that and say, oh, that's because they disobeyed what God told them to do. And everything's happening exactly the way God said it would happen in Deuteronomy 28. So with that in mind, let's look at chapter 28. Okay, chapter 28. Here, we're flipping back a few pages from where we started. I'll tell you while you get there in your Bible, while you spot chapter 28, that chapter 27 is basically Moses telling Israel that when you get into the promised land, and he wasn't going to be there because of his own sin in the book of Numbers, he tells them they should set up an altar as a way of reminding themselves of what God had called them to do and what God had called them to be. And that altar would be a constant reminder of the fact that they were the people of God and they should live in a particular way. And then the second half of chapter 27 is the people agreeing to obey God by affirming that the curses that will come on disobedience are just and right and that they know what they're signing up for here. So chapter 28, I'm going to verses 1 through 6 here. Follow along. See if any of these lines sound familiar to you at all. Deuteronomy 28 verses 1 through 6. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. Now it's possible if you've ever shopped at Hobby Lobby that you've seen signs, or plaques, or wall art of various kinds, or even coffee mugs that have some of these verses on them. I've seen a huge sign there that says, Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. That sounds lovely, but it's kind of that idea of, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. And the context here is, you obey perfectly, and then you'll have a really nice kneading bowl, right? Which means you'll have lots of bread, you'll have lots of food for your family. That's what that means there. And verses 7 through 14 then, kind of elaborate on this a little bit further, Uh, kind of rhetorically expand on these blessings, emphasizing you're going to have success against your enemies. You're going to win the wars that you are engaged in. You'll prosper in all your ways and in all your activities. It will all be good for you because you love God, because you walk in His ways. But just look again at verses 13 and 14. This is just to drive home this idea. The Lord will make you the head and not the tail, and you shall only go up and not down If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today, to the right hand or to the left, to go after the other gods to serve them. What do you get from those two verses? You have to obey. That's the idea. It's that simple. And that's what all of verses 1 through 14 are telling you. If you obey, it's going to be awesome. And Israel then has that choice. This is what life is going to look like, choosing to obey. But what do you notice comes after these 14 verses of blessings? If you look at verse 15, maybe right before it in your Bible, it will give you some kind of a header. So in my Bible, it says, curses for disobedience. 
and see how much space that section takes up compared to the list of blessings. In my Bible, it's two and a half pages. I think this is on page, I put, put this in my notes here somewhere, 158 maybe of your pew Bible. The blessings are less than one column. The curses are like two and a half columns. There's a lot of cursing. There's a lot of curses for disobedience. Life is going to be very, very hard for you if you choose to rebel against God is what he's saying here. And you essentially know that the curses represent the opposite of the blessings. There's deprivation of life, the presence of death, the presence of disease, the presence of defeat, and there's exile. You're going to be taken out of the land itself. Israel is going to experience the hardships that Egypt faced when they were facing the plagues in the book of Exodus, chapter 9 especially. In verse 29, chapter 28, verse 29, look there. You shall grope at noonday. Uh, Let's see, what am I looking at here? I think I have the wrong verse. Maybe it's correct. You grope in darkness, you shall not prosper in your ways, you shall be only oppressed and robbed continually, there will be no one to help you. I definitely have the wrong verse there, I think it might be uh, the next one, but essentially it's the contrast of, of Psalm 1 and 2, uh, Psalm 1 verses 2 and 3 I should say, that if you follow God you're going to be like a tree that's planted by streams of water and everything's going to be great and here it's, you're going to walk around it's going to be total drought and devastation, there's going to be no vegetation, you're going to be starving as a result. And these are just a sample of the curses that would come on God's people if they don't obey God's law. And as I said earlier, we have to read the rest of the Old Testament with this in mind. If everything's going well for Israel later on in the Old Testament, it's because they're obeying. If it's going badly, it's because they're disobeying. And let me give you a couple examples of how this plays itself out in the Old Testament. So one would be one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, and I realize this is like the most pastory thing I could say. One of my favorite chapters in the Bible is Habakkuk chapter 3. Okay, so you see there, like, how many of you would say that? So Habakkuk chapter 3 is this beautiful, poetic description of Israel's history. Like, God's just walking them through how he has provided for them, how he has ministered to his people, how he has protected them. And then Habakkuk closes Habakkuk 3, or not quite closes, but very close. Verses 17 and 18 are this poetic song, basically, where Habakkuk takes this passage and sings it, and says, even if everything goes bad, I'm still going to trust you. So a hymn writer, a British hymn writer named William Cooper from about 250 years or so ago, wrote a song called Sometimes a Light Surprises. Probably a song you've never heard of, which is fine, but it's a great song. And in the last verse of that song, he takes this idea of all the curses that are going to come, and he sings it this way. He says, though vine nor fig tree neither their wanted fruit should bear. Okay, it's going to be so dry, there's no vines, there's no grapes, there's no figs on the tree, so you're starving. Though all the fields should wither, all the grass is dried up, as it has been until we got this monsoon today. Uh, All the fields should wither, nor flocks nor herds be there. Why are all the flocks gone? Because the enemies have come in and stolen them all and killed them all. And they've maybe tied you up and let you watch them take your animals. So you're not going to eat them. They are. So, though though vine nor fig tree neither their wanted fruit should bear, though all the fields should wither, nor flocks nor herds be there, yet God the same abiding, his praise shall tune my voice, for while in him confiding I cannot but rejoice. That's what William Cooper wrote as a result of reading this passage particularly drawn out in Habakkuk 3, and the author of Habakkuk, the prophet Habakkuk, is saying, Lord, all our food's gone. 
oh yeah, that's because of Deuteronomy 28 and we chose to rebel. And we're seeing the fruit of our decisions now and the consequences of our rebellion. So Habakkuk is getting this idea that they would lose all their food as judgment from this passage. And I'm just giving you samples of this, I realize, but this is what specifically verses 49 through 51 say. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you're destroyed. It shall not leave you grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your herds or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish. All the food is gone. That's what it's saying. It's like the worst snowstorm ever. You go to the grocery store and there's no food left, except it's like that for months and months and months. Food's gone. There's nothing to be found. God, where's all our food? What's wrong? It's because you rebelled. It's because you're facing the consequences of your sin. That's what... Deuteronomy 28 is laying out for us. Another super important example of this is in 2 Kings 25, which I'll just encourage you to read on your own time. But 2 Kings 25 is where Israel is led away into exile. One of the most important moments in the Old Testament story. Why are they led away into exile? 2 Kings 25 takes language directly out of Deuteronomy 28 and says, you're being led away by a hard-faced nation because of your rebellion. Because you chose not to obey. Chapter 29 is a much brighter note. Okay, so we just got through chapter 27 in like 30 seconds. That was chapter 28 there. Chapter 29 is kind of a summary of the whole book of Deuteronomy. So if you haven't been here for other sermons in this series, go home at the end of the time and read Deuteronomy 29, and it kind of summarizes everything. It's saying God has been super gracious to you. And he's called you to obey him. And if you choose to obey him, it will be wonderful. And he has provided in great ways. He has overcome enemies in great ways. And now it's your responsibility to walk in his ways. That's what Deuteronomy 29 is doing. But he says in verse 4 that to this day the Lord, this is chapter 29, verse 4, to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. And then he reminds Israel of how when they walked through the wilderness, they had sandals that didn't wear out. They had adequate clothing and adequate food. The Lord provided for them graciously. When they came against great enemies, the Lord overwhelmed them. But you did not have the eyes to see it. You did not have the ears to hear it because the Lord had not given it to them. Maybe that's really distressing to you, but this is a good reminder to us that both the Old Testament and the New Testament tells us that faith is a gift from God. So when you know someone who does not believe what the Bible says, and maybe they look at you like you have two heads because of you believing that Jesus is the only king of the world and things along these lines, it's a reminder to pray for them, to be compassionate toward them, to be humble, because you received the gift of faith as a gift, not because of something that you did to earn it. I'd like you to look as well at chapter 29 as I realize we're just kind of skipping along here. That's why I said we're just, I may not dot every I for you here, but here in chapter 29, look at verse uh, 28. I'm sorry, chapter 29, verse 18. Chapter 29, verse 18. And see if uh, part of this passage sounds familiar to you as I read this. Uh, It's quoted in the New Testament. Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. 
Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. Essentially, what we have here is a call to make sure that there are not people among you who are rebelling against God. The way that this passage is quoted in the New Testament is in Hebrews chapter 12. And I think it's often misunderstood, so let me just kind of talk through it there. In Hebrews 12, there's this line that says, make sure there's no root of bitterness springing up among you. And a lot of times that's interpreted as saying, I need to be careful individually to make sure that I don't let anger build up inside my heart in such a way that now I'm going to become a terribly bitter person and it's going to destroy me from the inside. It's good to not become a bitter person. And when you've met a bitter person, you know that it's kind of miserable to be around them. But that's not what that passage is talking about. It's quoting this idea of saying, make sure in the church that there's not somebody who's a bad apple corrupting the other apples in the bunch, if that makes sense to you. Or if you have a container of blueberries and in the middle is one nasty, hairy, moldy one, it's going to make the other ones nasty and hairy too. Same thing with the apples, where we get the line of, you know, don't, don't let the bad apple spoil the bunch. The idea is when you have somebody in your church, or in this case when you have somebody in Israel who's rebelling against God, who does not care about the things of God. Well, let's just talk about in the church because that's what Hebrews does. When you have someone in your church who's rebellious, it's like they are a tree, a root, that's bearing bitter fruit. And you know people by their fruits, Jesus says. So the idea here is make sure there aren't people in your church who are making claims to follow Christ but actually don't follow Christ. And we do that here at Brainerd Avenue through something we call meaningful church membership. And what that means is we love for you to join our church, to want to join our church. But we're going to kind of hold you to it. It's going to mean that if you don't show up for like six months, we're probably going to be sending you letters and just encouraging you to come back. We're going to be calling you and texting you and emailing you and just trying to connect with you to see what's going on to make sure that you are okay, both physically, but especially spiritually. Maybe you have drifted away. Maybe the influence of the secular environment you work in has worn you down and it's embarrassing to you to call yourself a Christian because it has bad effects on your workplace and on, on the, your, your social acceptance in your workplace or in your school environment. And so what this passage is doing, and especially the way that the author of Hebrews applies it in Hebrews 12, is make sure that you're watching out for one another. Because if you have somebody trying to live life on their own as someone walking with God, as a Christian, they're destined for hardship. They're destined for difficulty. It's going to be like they're in a small boat on a very, you know, wavy ocean. I don't know how else to say this. I need somebody with nautical experience to talk me through that. But the idea is you are in big trouble if you are not with the people of God. The arrows are all going to be aiming at you and you have no defense. We need one another, is what this passage is telling us. We need to be watching out for one another and helping one another walk in God's ways. One other very uh, frequently quoted verse here in chapter 29 is verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Simply put, 
what Moses is saying is there are things we don't know about the future, but we do have the revealed things like if you obey, it will go well for you, and if you disobey, it will be very bad for you. Those are the revealed things. So leave the rest to the Lord. Do what He has called you to do. That's what verse 29 is telling you to do. Look at verse 30 now, and what we'll see is that God essentially tells these people, it's not going to go well for you. I already know. You're going to rebel, and you're going to be taken away in exile, but then you're going to come back. There's a beautiful promise of hope here in chapter 30, verses 1 through 4 especially. When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, so God's the one behind this, this isn't an accident, and you return to the Lord your God, that means you repent, you and your children, and you obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes, which is a phrase quoted regularly in the Psalms of Ascent, Psalms uh, about 121 through 134 or so. He will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will take you. And so what we know from the story of the Old Testament is God's people were taken away. That's 2 Kings 25. But then what I just mentioned, the Psalms of Ascent are Psalms of people ascending back to Jerusalem after the exile. They're marching back to Jerusalem because now God has given them their land back. And it's devastating when you read books like Nehemiah and Ezra to see when they get back, the city's destroyed. The temple's destroyed. Now where are we supposed to worship God? And so they rebuild the temple. They rebuild the walls and so forth. But the Old Testament story is kind of told in a nutshell here. You're going to come back. God's going to restore your fortunes. And what I want to tell you is he's still doing this. He's still calling people into the family of God through faith in Christ. And so Israel is presented with Two critical choices in the passage I started our sermon off with, verses 11 through 20. Are you going to follow God or are you going to rebel against him? Moses was not neutral on whether they should walk with God or not. Did you pick up on that as I read earlier in verse 19? I call heaven and earth to witness. Remember, there needs to be two witnesses. The two witnesses are heaven and earth. They're watching. They're seeing this conversation between God and Israel. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. What should you do then? Eh, I don't care. That is not what Moses says. He says, choose life. You know what you're supposed to do. And they did not do it. Choose life that you and your offspring may live. The way you choose life is by loving God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him because he is your life. And Moses is not neutral. He's begging them, please walk with God when you cross over into that land. And I told you at the beginning of the sermon that you have a choice to make as well. And so this is where, if I've lost you at all, I hope I have not, but if I've lost you in these long chapters here, I want to call you to remember that you have a choice to make as well. Are you going to choose life by choosing Christ? Or are you going to rebel against Him and choose death? Will you do everything God has told you to do and thereby enjoy life? Or will you live the way you want to? And what I just said, will you choose to do everything God called you to do, you should probably feel an impending sense of doom. Because you know yourself. You know you cannot obey God perfectly. You know that sin lurks in your heart as your constant companion. 
that you want to do what's right, but your heart steers you toward evil over and over and over again. I want to tell you that the way you as someone who follows Christ, someone who has chosen life by choosing to follow Christ, receiving the gift of conversion by faith and repentance, the way you show your love for God is obedience. Yes, it's imperfect obedience, but God does still call us to obey him, to walk in his ways. The way we show love for God is through obedience. It's not an emotion that you feel when you're singing or when you're in a you know, secluded hut in a beautiful field and you just think, all right, now I'm just going to alone with me and, get, me and Jesus and we're just going to sit here together. That's not love for God. It's just an emotion. Love for God is the way you live out His Word and His ways. One way you show your love for God is by showing up for worship services, even when it's pouring rain outside. So thank you for being here. There are plenty of ways you could spend your time. And you continue to show your love for God by continuing to want to learn from Him in the context of a local church. One of the blessings of this passage, though, is that even though you know your inability to walk in God's ways, God is the one who will give you a new heart. Perhaps you remember back in chapter 10, God saying, circumcise your heart. Have a new heart, one that's ready to love God. And you, if you were the people of Israel, you'd be like, I don't know how to do that. That sounds deadly, like I will literally die if I try and cut off a part of my heart. But chapter 6 says, The Lord your God, I'm sorry, chapter 30, verse 6, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. If you heard Clayton preach a few weeks ago from the book of Hebrews, you heard about this new covenant. A new covenant involved in that is God giving you a new heart that wants to love God and wants to walk in his ways. This is the gift of conversion. The way your heart is circumcised, is made new, is by God reaching into your heart and giving you the gift of faith when you choose to believe in, in Christ and repent of your sin. And so you want these blessings. You want to choose life. But you also read in books like 2 Timothy 3 that living the Christian life is really hard, that persecution is surely going to come. So when are all these blessings going to come? And I would tell you, They're going to come in the new heavens and the new earth. They're going to come when Christ returns and strikes down the enemy. And so wait for that day to see these blessings fulfilled. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I want to ask you, what is your worst case scenario? In your life, what's the worst thing that could possibly happen? Not having enough to retire on? Not having your dream job? Not having your children love you later in life? What's the worst thing you could imagine? And I want to tell you that what this passage lays out for us, what the Bible lays out for us, is that your worst case scenario is way worse than you could imagine. It is separation from God for eternity. Hell is the punishment that God gives for our sin, for our rebellion against Him. And that rebellion reveals itself in our words, in our actions, in our attitudes, in our self-seeking ambition, and so on. And the punishment for that rebellion is separation from God in hell. But the way we escape that punishment is not by trying harder, not by trying to keep every single one of these laws in the book of Deuteronomy from chapter 12 through 26. Well, if I keep those, then maybe I'll be fine. No, you can never solve this problem of your own sin on your own. The solution to this problem of sin in your heart is through faith in Jesus, who came to earth as a true human, perfectly obeyed God, was crucified on a Roman cross, publicly humiliated, 
buried in a borrowed tomb, rose out of the grave on the third day and ascended to heaven, he will victoriously come again to judge the world in glory and righteousness. And all who believe in him find forgiveness and life. And we here at Brainerd Avenue Baptist Church urge you to do that. It is a gift from God that you are here today to hear this message so that you can choose life by choosing to follow Jesus. Jesus is the one righteous man who obeyed God's entire law, who took the curse, who endured it and embraced it on the cross so that we could be the recipients of God's unmerited mercy, the blessings poured out described in the beginning of chapter 28. Perhaps some of you are familiar with the TV show called Hoarders. I think there's something like 13 episodes, and in my life I've seen something like three, uh, 13 seasons, and there's something like, uh, I, I'm sorry, I should say that. I think there's something like 13 seasons, and I've seen something like three episodes. So I'm not a Hoarders you know, expert, but I think I've ge- generally picked up on in those three episodes or so how the, season typically, or how the show typically goes. You have somebody with a huge problem, like huge as in like every nook and cranny of their house is filled with stuff. And they don't know what to do about it. And so this TV show comes in to try and help them. But in the, you know, two or three or four episodes I've seen in my life, there's typically this moment where the person's like, yeah, get out of here. I don't want you guys here to help me anymore. I would rather have my stuff, even though it means nobody can come in my house, even though it means my kids are mad at me, even though I've never seen my grandchildren in my house, and on and on. I'd rather have my stuff. And there's kind of this point of decision. Which way are you going to go? Are you going to let us help you so you can actually live in your house? Are you going to have your stuff, most of which is inaccessible because it's in a garage you can't even get to because it's blocked by your four boats or whatever? And the sad part is even those who decide to proceed with the show and let them help them, and they get rid of, say, 50 or 75 or even 90% of their belongings, from what you find out, those people still struggle. And over time, they just keep reaccumulating more belongings. They still have conflict with their spouse that was there before the show came on and the conflict is there on the show, and the conflict is there after the show. And they still obsess over possessions that are ultimately worthless. But what the show is doing is showing these people have a decision to make. Which way are you going to go? You can choose life and have room to walk around in your house and not have nasty you know, rats climbing through your belongings. Or you can choose death and just keep accumulating stuff, all of which is going to be worthless, and one day you're going to die and all your stuff's going to be thrown away at that point. These are your choices. That's what the show kind of lays out for you. This passage is giving a far more significant decision for you to make. Are you going to choose life by walking in faith and repentance before Jesus, by claiming the blessings that he gives you through his own perfect obedience? Or are you going to choose to rebel against the Lord? You truly do have two ways to live. And we urge you, choose life by choosing Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Father, make us wise people, we pray. That's a work of your Spirit. We pray you make us wise in the way that we walk in your ways. For those who are on the fence, will I choose Christ or not? We pray you give them the gift of faith by the work of your Spirit, regenerating them, making them alive. Pray that our congregation as a whole would be people who long for your blessings, but know that they will come to us in the next life that we would walk in holiness together, watching over one another, caring for one another well, 
calling one another to continued faith and repentance as we seek to walk in your ways all the days of our lives. In Christ's name, amen.